0: Please pray with me. Father, like the father in that story, we frequently can only say to you, we do believe, but please help our unbelief. Lord, I pray particularly this day that we would see the glory of your son. Amen. Michael introduced us last week to the letter of James. We will be in James for the month of September. James is one of those neglected letters. It doesn't get the attention that Paul's letters do. And to a large degree, this is simply because it contributes less to Christian theology than Paul's letters do. James is focused on ethics, our behavior, and he tells us far less about theology It's not that Paul doesn't also address ethics or behavior. He does. But he does it at the tail end of letters after having spent chapters developing theology. Not James. Very little explicit theology. He just plunges right in to giving commands. He's like a wise grandfather who's actually fairly stern. He's long since stopped trying to be persuasive. And he honestly doesn't care what you think. He's just going to tell you what to do. He's right. And he's wise. But he's not always gentle with us. Even in the beginning, listen to the way that the book starts. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That's the extent of the introduction. And then he plunges in, count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter trials of various sorts. Listen to the sternness of that. Greetings. Rejoice when you suffer. That's how abrupt it is. Paul has these long, eloquent prayers of thanksgiving for the congregation that he opens each letter with. Not James. A command right up front. It's a neglected letter, but it shouldn't be. It's one of those things that I think we need to look at. It's like an ice bath for sore muscles. It's going to do you good even if you don't enjoy it. So we're going to plunge in. Because even in James, with its stern commands, under the surface runs something beautiful. Like Michael said last week, running through it is this deep Jewish belief in the consistency and the faithfulness and the unity of God. Running through it is this deep understanding of God's mercy. As I thought about James this week, it occurred to me that it's very much like a fertile spot in an arid landscape. We see what's on the surface, these plants, these commands, but they only make sense because of the deep river running under the surface, the river that is the character and the mercy and the gospel of our Lord. Even from time to time, that river bubbles up and you see it directly on the surface. In other words, it shouldn't be a neglected letter because there is beauty underneath it. The passage that we heard today, James 2, 1-17, through 17, is classic James. He pulls no punches. It's commands. It's direct. It's clear. In verses 1-7, through 7, if you missed it, you were asleep. His point is clear. Don't show favoritism to the rich. It's incompatible with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His justification for this is that God has particular love for the poor, so don't you dare despise them. And he also justifies it by saying, it's the rich, by the way, who mistreat you. They blaspheme the name of God because you are called by God's name, and when they mistreat you, they're blaspheming God himself. You can't miss his point. No favoritism in the church. In verses 8 through 13, again, he's not unclear. He says very directly, Fulfill God's law by being people who love our neighbors and show mercy. He says God's law is summed up in the command, Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're showing favoritism, you're not loving your neighbor. Furthermore, he says, if you break a piece of God's law, you're guilty of the whole thing. You can't pick and choose the pieces of God's law that you like. The ones that are easy to do, and he comes brings us to the end of eight through thirteen by saying, "If you want to avoid judgment, you're going to have to become a person of mercy. The only thing that triumphs over judgment is mercy." And in verse fourteen to seventeen, again, his point is explicit: if your faith is not showing up in your actions, it's dead; it profits nothing. Faith without works flowing out of it is like saying to a person who's hungry, be full, or a person who's naked, be warm, and not giving them the means to be warm or to be full. It's dead faith, and it profits you nothing. That faith won't save you. This is classic James. That's how easy it is to sum up the passage. It's in your face. He pulls no punches. It's bracing. It's absolutely clear. He's the wise grandfather who stopped beating around the bush years ago. My grandmother used to say that when you get to a certain age, you can open your opinion box whenever you want. (laughs) She did. Both say that and open the box. James opens his opinion box with us, and he does it freely, and he does it sternly. If you think you believe in Jesus, he says, but, you, but if you treat the, preferential, the wealthy preferentially, you're deceiving yourself. Your faith isn't actually in the Lord Jesus. Your faith is dead. You're headed for judgment. It's stern. It's stern. Courtney and I actually saw this passage literally acted out a number of years ago. A number of years ago, we attended a church where everybody in the church had a great deal of money. Sort of place where when we first showed up, we quickly realized we'd need new clothes. In fact, I think we might even need new haircuts to attend this place. Yeah, Courtney bought pearls. My nicest coat and tie in this church made me the worst dressed guy in the church. You know, you know the sort of place. One Sunday, midway through church, at the doors of the back, a man appeared. A homeless man. He was dirty. He was disheveled. He was disoriented. He was standing there at the back. This is mid-sermon. And a couple of guys get up from the church, and I cringed inside because I knew what was going to happen. You know, they go to the back. They politely escort him somewhere where he won't be seen, give him a little bit of money to ease their consciences, and then move him on his way, get him out. He smells. He's filthy. I cringed when I saw them get up. I knew what was going to happen. But I was so wrong, I was so wrong, because those guys went up and they got him, and they brought him down the side aisle, they shifted people over for him, and they sat him right here, right up front, and they invited him to be a part of the congregation. And after the service was over, people clustered around him. They wanted to hear what was going on, they wanted to hear his story, they wanted to help him. It was beautiful. It's exactly what James is encouraging us to. These wealthy Christians that I had this stereotype of, who showed genuine mercy and care for this poor man who stumbled into the congregation, a man despised and forgotten by the world. This is what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to be people who show absolutely no favoritism, we're supposed to be people who show no partiality. The rich are not supposed to get more privilege in the church. Their voice isn't supposed to count more in the church. When we show favoritism in the church, in James' words, this is verse 4, we become judges with evil thoughts. We put ourselves in God's place. He alone can judge. And we've claimed a standard, a sinful standard of judgment, to judge by the externals and the money rather than the way that God judges by the heart. We've placed ourselves in God's place, and we've chosen sinful criteria, and we've said we are the judge rather than God, and God is the God who looks at the heart. We're not listening to his standard of judgment if we show favoritism for the rich. We're creating an evil system, evaluating people like the world. The church is supposed to be the place where it does not matter if you're wealthy or if you're poor. The church is supposed to be the place where the standards of the world do not mean anything. But as one commentator on this passage said eloquently, money still does the talking far too loudly in Christian circles, and where it when it does, the glory of Christ departs. There have been many instances in the history of the church where someone's status, status in the world, mattered more than their heart before the Lord. You see, fallen society treats the wealthy as more important. We claim that we don't. We claim that we're on the side of the poor. But go look at who ends up on TV. It's the wealthy. Go read People magazine. It's the wealthy. Go look at who kids want to emulate. It's the wealthy. Fallen society treats the wealthy as more important. It believes their voice counts more. They have more to say. If People magazine existed in the kingdom of God, you know who would be in it? the broken and the humble and the poor. In the kingdom of God, it's not the rich who get elected to political office. It's day laborers and shepherds who are given authority in the kingdom. It's shocking how flipped upside down the whole system is. It doesn't take money to come to a position of authority in the kingdom of God. It's a heart that longs for the presence of the Lord and follows him faithfully. In the world, the people who get invitations to the fancy parties are the ones with money and status who increase the status of the party by their presence, by their glory. You know who gets invitations to the parties in the kingdom of God? Jesus says this in a parable and then he says it to his disciples explicitly. In the parable he says it's the people sleeping under the bushes on the highways. Those are the ones that God goes to find, the homeless, the poor, He says in a warning to his disciples, when you give a party, don't invite the people who can honor you in return. In other words, have enough wealth to do it back to you. Invite those who can't honor you in return, who have no means. In other words, in the kingdom of God, again, things are flipped upside down. In the world, the people who get listened to, who get interviewed, are the powerful, the wealthy, the accomplished. In the kingdom of God, the people who get listened to are those who stop to serve others. Jesus said it explicitly. This is what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. Fallen society treats the wealthy as more important, and the church can fall into this trap whenever we stop thinking like Jesus. The reality is, is that Jesus has particular love for the poor. It's what James says in verse 5. And he's not making it up. This is all over the scriptures. That God has particular concern and love for the poor. It's not that they're all good. And it's not that all of them will end up saved. And it's not that there aren't faithful, wealthy Christians who love God. James has actually already acknowledged that in chapter 1. That there are wealthy Christians who love God. But God's bias is on behalf of the poor. And he regularly warns the rich not to trust their money. This is almost offensive to us in our society, but it's all over the scriptures that he loves the poor with this particular special love. He warns the rich because it's so easy when we have money to think that we are self-sufficient and we don't need God. It's so easy when we have money to think that we are better than those around us. It's so easy when we have money for it to become our God. And so God warns the rich, don't put your trust in those things. And he says to the poor, I love you. I love you and I will take care of you. Like I said, James is the wise grandfather who doesn't necessarily care what you think, but is going to tell you the truth, the truth that you need to hear. And if it makes you squirm a little bit, join the club. It's bracing, it's stern, it's wise. James isn't interested in letting his disciples believe the lies of the world. He doesn't care if he offends, but he is not interested in letting his disciples believe the lie that money makes you more important. And he is not interested in letting his disciples treat those with wealth as more important. The truth is too important to James, and so he tells you like it is. But I said that underneath the stern commands of James runs this beautiful river. Under the surface, there is this river that is the gospel, and his perspective on this issue only makes sense because of the gospel. Step back with me and think for a second. If the gospel isn't true, then by all means, treat people preferentially based on your wealth. Use whatever means you can to get ahead in life because it's all that counts. If the gospel isn't true, James' perspective don't make, doesn't make sense. But running underneath what he says to us is this deep, beautiful river. And I want to step into that deep water with you as we close. I want to step into it just by meditating on the very first verse. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. A simple verse I hesitate most of the time to actually critique translations, but this is one of those instances where I really want to. This isn't actually what James wrote. A word got added in, and I think it's significant. What James actually said is, My brothers, show no partialities. You hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Not the Lord of glory, but the glory. The translators put the Lord in because it's hard to know what to do with just this hanging word at the end, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. But I think it's clear. It's subtle, but it's really important. Jesus Christ isn't just the Lord of glory, he is the glory itself. James is following a Jewish convention, where rather than saying the name of God, you use an attribute to name him. For example, at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author calls God the majesty on high. He avoids saying his name and just names him by a characteristic to show reverence for the name. And James is doing something like that. But what's startling is he's doing it with the Lord Jesus Christ. He just calls him the glory. He's equating Jesus with the Father. He's equating Jesus with, the God, with God himself by using this descriptor. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, who is the glory, You may go, why are you bringing this up? Think with me for a second. This is a subtle jab at what you think is glorious. After all, we treat the wealthy preferentially because we think that having money and clothing and the home and the car makes you more glorious. And James is poking at that from the beginning. Jesus is the glory, not worldly wealth. Riches that we have on this earth Don't compare to the glory that is the Lord Jesus. But what he's saying actually goes deeper than this, because there's a challenge running through this passage. And this is the challenge that I want to close with with y'all. Do you know what glory looks like? Do you know what glory looks like? Are your eyes tuned to the true glory that is Jesus Christ? Or have they been confused by some other glory? James, by the way, could challenge us on this because he missed it. Remember, James grew up in the family of Jesus. And you know what's startling? Is that James didn't believe in Jesus during his lifetime. He didn't believe in Jesus till the resurrection. He missed the glory that was Jesus Christ. And this is why he has the authority to challenge us on this. He missed the authority that was Jesus Christ because he himself saw Jesus' humility and frailty and humanity. They grew up together. He saw him working with his hands dirty, his clothing unwashed. He saw the humility of the Lord Jesus, and he missed his glory. James looked at Jesus and thought, this man has no glory. And he's still thinking in the way that the world thinks about what true glory is. And so he challenges us on this. He reminds us that Jesus Christ is the glory. The answer that scripture gives if we were to say, so then what what is glory? What does glory look like? If we're to step back and ask that question, the one that James is almost sort of subtly encouraging us to ask, The answer that scripture gives of what glory looks like turns everything that the world believes about status and glory upside down. Because we know that Jesus' glory is seen in the fact that he was willing to humble himself. Let this sink deep into your hearts. His glory was seen in the willingness to become a servant. In fact, the very reason why James couldn't believe in him was his glory, because his glory was the fact that he was willing to become like an ordinary person. Dirty hands, aching back at the end of the day, no fancy foods, a bed that's stiff. His glory was in the fact that he was willing to submit to the Father, That he willingly set aside status and position. His glory is in the fact that he was willing to take the lowest place. That his love for the sinner, his willingness to eat with prostitutes and tax collectors, his love for children, putting them on his lap when the apostles said, no, 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 you're too important for this. His glory is seen in his lowliness. His glory is seen in his humiliation. If we're to go to the very bottom of this well that James is opening the door to, Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus calls the cross his glory. His glorification is in his death. And we sanitize it and think of it nobly. But the Son of God, humiliated, beaten, dying as a criminal, mocked and despised, spat upon, that is his glory. That is his glory. Like I said, we need to get our eyes tuned to the right glory. And that's what James is calling us to do. Because you can't gaze at the glory that is Jesus Christ broken on the cross and call that glory and then turn and look at someone with a big bank account and a nice home and say, and that also is glory. The two are incompatible with one another. We end up being self-contradictory, literally double-minded, If we call the one glory and the other also glory. Michael reminded us last week that James cares a great deal that we're not double minded, thinking two things that are contradictory, trusting and doubting at the same time. And this passage is a subtle working out of those ideas. James is reminding us that true glory looks like the Lord Jesus on the cross, it does not look like bank accounts, homes, cars. This, by the way, is why it makes no sense whatsoever to treat somebody with the world's vision of glory as more important in the kingdom of God. If glory truly is revealed by Jesus Christ, suffering in humiliation on the cross, everything is flipped upside down. Everything has changed. All of our values have to be undone and remade in light of this new thing that is glory. His true glory was his willingness to suffer for us. I said at the beginning that under the surface of James runs the gospel, this deep water. And there it is. Because the glory of Jesus Christ is that he was willing to suffer for you. The glory of Jesus Christ is his willingness to suffer for your shame. Think in this and your deepest places of need and brokenness, he said, I will step into that place with you and suffer there for you. And that is glory. God himself saying, I will be with you when you are broken. I will be with you when you are shamed. I will be with you when you are dirty. This is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what James is hinting at us when he calls Jesus Christ, the glory. The glory. So don't despise the gift that is God's glory, a gift given to you. Don't despise that gift by turning and saying that the world's vision of glory means something. The world's vision of glory means nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ on the cross. It is literally meaningless, nothing of value. Don't despise the gift that is offered for you by thinking that it matters to God what your bank account looks like. Don't despise the gift that is offered to you by thinking that it matters to God your status in the eyes of the world. If he was willing to suffer on the cross for you, everything is undone and everything is remade and all the standards that you have been told have to be flipped on their head because glory is the Lord himself saying, I'll come to where you are and give myself to you. And so as James sternly tells us, don't show favoritism. What runs below the surface is the deepest appreciation of the beauty of God, that he comes to where we are and offers himself to people in need. Amen.